Hopefully you're in fellowship and you're ready to continue our discussion of uh, confidence in Christ. And we're going to start today by saying that there are, these are the, what I think to be the four sweetest words in the English language. You're thinking, I love you. No, that's just three. God loves you. Still just three. I am forgetting. Nope, still three. All the best things come in three. The four sweetest words in the English language, near as I can tell, is mind your own business. I love those words. Mind your own business. When I'm told to mind my own business, I'm quite thankful because it means that I've put my nose somewhere it doesn't belong and someone's lovingly told me not to. But there's two reasons that uh, someone has, has uh, pointed out. I tried to find out who, who, who authored this quote and I couldn't today. But he said there's two reasons why people don't mind their own business. One, no mind. Two, no business. And that could be true of quite a few people. But it's, it's interesting because minding your own business has become a, a real challenge, particularly in this time in our culture. And uh, this is only going to be familiar to possibly some of us, but there's been this new kind of thought or, or thinking uh, or maybe a meme or an idea that's kind of plagued our culture. And it's plagued our culture because uh, people have made it. And it's the Karen meme. Has anybody heard of Karen? Now, my mom's named Karen, so it's nothing to do with the name Karen or anyone named Karen. But Karen has become sort of a cultural idea for someone who's quite the busybody. Karen would like to speak to the manager when she's done harassing the minimum wage employee because something needs to be done about this. Karen would like to know why you're not wearing your mask when you're in your car alone because it's protecting all of us. In my car alone? Well, Karen thinks you should be wearing it, so she's gonna call the police. Karen is also ready to call the police when she sees young people she doesn't recognize at her local park. Karen is ready to call the authorities or just raise Cain over pretty much any business that's not her own. In fact, Karen is the self-appointed authority on everything. And there's not a whole lot of positive things you can say about a busybody, right? And yet a lot of people wind up going towards busybodyism, we might say, because they don't understand what business they're meant to be minding. In fact, as I was doing kind of some research for this, I found multiple articles about why we should not mind our own business, and it was written by a Karen, why, should, why I should not mind my own business and why you should do what I say. Right? It's a tiresome thing. But I think once we come to a calm and collected understanding of what the Bible has to say, then we will be able to truly mind our own business in the best possible way. And then finally come to the point of being able to lovingly help others and serve others instead of trying to conform the world to our small-minded view of, of, the world, of, of it. So... Today, we're going to go back and get the big picture because we've finished up another section in our Confidence in Christ study. We started off with a, a large section on why there's no reason for a believer to have self-confidence, right? We saw that anything uh, that comes from ourselves, the ultimate end of anything we can bring forth is sinful, it is inappropriate, it is unpleasing or not pleasing to God. So we saw that anything that gives us self-confidence or confidence exclusively or centered around ourselves is not biblically aligned and will ultimately disappoint. Then we saw that the only thing you can have is in the confidence and truly is confidence in the perfect, omniscient, omnipresent, um, omnipotent God. 
That, that's who you can have absolute confidence in, but you can also have confidence as every uh, true perfectionist knows. A perfectionist is actually cursed with a, an actual view or an accurate view, rather, of reality. They know that perfection exists. They know that God per- is perfect, and they know that they're not, and they're plagued by that, where most of us can shrug our shoulders and say, eh, I guess everything's goofed up. They can't allow themselves to do that because they have such an inbuilt c- concept of God's perfection and know they're falling short, right? So <clears throat> we see that while we can have absolute confidence in God, because he is righteous and we're unrighteous, the only thing that we can con- be confident in is that he will destroy us. And that's why we can only find confidence at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there our sin is dealt with, there we are forgiven, there we are restored, there we find that we are enabled to live the life that God has designed us to live, and only there. And so we found that all that uh, confidence needs to be placed in God's perfect provision for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we cannot live with the type of confidence that God intended us and designed us to live in. Then we took several uh, lessons to look at what it means to be confident in our identification. So we saw our eternal identification with Jesus Christ. We saw that when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were identified with him at the the cross, in his crucifixion, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his seating. If you've trusted Jesus Christ today from God's eternal perspective, the one who calls uh, light and darkness into existence you are seated at the right hand of the Father. That is where you are. That is positionally true of you. In this world's perspective, we see in our condition, we're still stumbling along, we're failing, we're, we're learning, we're growing. But from the eternal perspective, all that you are in Christ, you are perfected, you are redeemed, you are set apart, you are fully and entirely equipped for everything that you need in life, for life and godliness. In your identification with Christ, you're exactly as God means you to be. Then we looked at our confidence in our condition, and that was the last several lessons. We looked at what it means to be confident now also involves the humility of the recognition that we're growing, right? And as we walk by means of the Spirit, as we have our eyes fixed upon what Christ has done for us, or we're preoccupied with Jesus, we grow. We grow and live with confidence and recognize that when we fall short and that we uh, come to our shortcomings, we find that God is growing us or he's nourishing us and nurturing us to grow past those things. And we saw how if we don't understand that our growth process is a process, then we're going to be underconfident. And so many people, because they don't understand how the Christian is meant to grow, one, they don't grow, right, because they're not cooperating with God properly according to his word, we also saw that they wind up constantly being shaken in their confidence, even in their salvation, because they say, well, if I'm, if I'm saved, why am I still struggling with sin? Shouldn't I not be? Right? I, I think that every genuine believer has struggled with this or had this thought at some point. Surely God's done forgiving me now. Surely I've blown it one too many times. Surely this is the end and God's going to let me go, drop me like a hot rock. But we see and we understand the nature of how God designed us to grow over time, how he patiently and lovingly uh, waits us, nurtures us, and brings us through, that we find out that we can live in confidence even in our shortcomings, even in our trials, even in our difficulties, knowing that he's working all things together for good, for our ultimate confirmation to the image of his son, Jesus Christ.
So, hopefully, as we've gone through these things, we've removed the bad places that we just naturally in our flesh try to place our confidence, and we've found better places to put our confidence. And today, as it comes to minding our own business, the, really the thing that we need to do if we're going to mind our own business is we need to know what our business is, right? I mean, there was a, a wonderful secretary at my, uh, one of my jobs years ago at, at a car dealership who was quite convinced that even though she was called the secretary, sat in the secretary's seat, and um, was paid like the secretary, that she was really the general manager of the whole place. She was certain, to be fair, she had been there for about 10,000 years and knew more than any of the GMs. So, yet, about twice a year, someone in management had to remind her that while she might be just excellent as the general manager, she was still the secretary, and she, is, she would be, do well to what? To mind her own business. So, we need to understand what our business is. And what this really is, when you think about it, is a question of, because if, if we're putting all of our confidence in God and his idea, uh, in our identification with him and his work on the cross and our condition, it's really a question of what is God's will. God is the one who can assign the tasks. Jobs, God's the one who we might say gives the jobs. He's the one who can tell us what we're meant to do or what we're not meant to do. So, before we start on this uh, path, one of the things that gives Christians the greatest amount of insecurity or underconfidence is a lack of understanding of God's will. We'll bring that chart back in a minute. Don't worry. If you haven't memorized it by now, I highly encourage you to do so. It's three circles. You can do that. You're good. But we want to talk about taking the wrong angle on God's will because humanity has been trying to divine God's will or understand what God's will is. Various people use mediums, prophets, and Ouija boards and all sorts of gross, demonic, satanic methods just to try to find out what God's will is, whatever, however they're viewing that. Um, and I want to point out that we can come to wrong ideas as Christians about what God's will is and misunderstand what we're meant to be doing, and that can cause insecurity. So some of us will think that it's our job, it's God's will, that we do lots and lots and lots and lots of good works. Now, we're going to see good works are critically important. In fact, as uh, Sam, I think, pointed out on Sunday, good works are, are, are critical to come forth from the healthy Christian life. But he doesn't want us just running around and generating good works to do. He want, From our perspective, he wants us to do his divine good, not be obsessed with what we think we should be doing. Furthermore, this always brings about trying to find the most comprehensive set of man-made rules. No bowling, no cards, no dance, no drink, no, 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 right? I know I'm doing well if I'm not doing all the things that this or that church person said I am. Now, those might be perfectly good things to stay away from. Like if someone said, Brad, no donuts, it would be probably a brilliant thing for me and a health purpose. Now, mental health, that's a whole different thing. But the reality is, is that even if I were to you know, swear off donuts forever, there would be no uh, theological or spiritual advantage to that, uh, that thing. So either by following man-made rules or just trying to multiply our good works, we're going to come about things wrong. I know, I know, that, I'm, I know that I'm in God's will because I'm doing all the good things and I'm avoiding all the bad things. 
Well, it's going to fall. We'll see. We'll evaluate that, but I believe it'll fall short. Next, religious observations. A lot of us think, and in fact, most man-made religions, particularly man-made Christian religions or cults, center around the idea that we don't know what God wants, but don't worry, the church is here to tell you, right? It's this um, rite or this sacrament or this thing. It's be in church every Sunday. It's make sure you're at these or be at church whenever the doors are open for uh, for whatever it means. Make sure you're baptized. Make sure you make sure you make sure you make sure you, right? Um, religious observations, thinking I must be okay because I did all those great things uh, that God wanted me to do. I checked off the, my church's checklist. And we're going to see that God's will for you is going to be more thoroughgoing even than that. Furthermore, we can think, well, if everyone else is happy with me, then I must be in God's will. I just have to keep everyone else happy. Have you ever tried to keep everyone in your life happy with you? Where does that leave you besides psychotic and utterly miserable? Because inevitably, if you have more than one person in your life, at which point you would just make them an idol, but if you have more than one person in your life, they're, they're going to be at odds. And that's going to put you at odds. And that's assuming that someone doesn't want to do something that's not, um, not best for you. Uh, the next one is the golden road view of God's will. Now, this is the idea that God is some horrifying, cruel person who has a will. He wants you to wear a certain t-shirt this morning or a certain shirt, but he's not going to tell you which one. He wants you to make this choice and not that choice. And a lot of times when we come to our big life choices, we want God to make the choice for us. We say, God, I have to choose between these two jobs or living in these two cities or going to these two schools. Tell me which I should do. And God goes, nah, I'm not going to tell you what to do. So tragically, a lot of people go through their lives and really deeply insecure because then they go and choose this job or this school or this whatever, and they say, oh my goodness, this could not, or that wife or husband, and they say, this couldn't be God's will because now it's hard and now it's miserable and now it's terrible. Surely it was God's will for me to choose the other one. And then they go over to the other one, whatever the other one was, and what happens there? Well, that wasn't God's will either because it's hard and it's miserable and it's difficult. And maybe God's will is that you learn something from how hard or difficult or miserable your choices are. Far more so than what choices you make. It's about learning and growing in Christ-likeness wherever he has us, right? So this idea plagues us, though, that God has some hidden best will for our lives, but he's holding out until we fast long enough, not to say anything negative about fasting, or pray long enough, certainly not to say anything negative about praying, or we uh, go through, in fact, the golden road, uh, method of uh, certifying or finding God's will has given rise to the ever scientific uh, test that is at least rumored to be used by some wherein a young man opens his Bible to a random page and then tries to discern from whatever Jeremiah 12, 7 says. It says, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. Kids, I'm sorry, we're moving. Brutal, Right? But that's, that was God's will. That's what it, When I opened his book and treated it like a Ouija board or a magic eight ball, that's what came out, right? And you're laughing. But I hope you're laughing because you've done this once and you realize how silly it is. Because I've done it. I, 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 please, I'm preaching to myself. This is why it's a passionate, important message to me. Because I've been caught in that nightmarish world of the idea. We don't really think of it that way, but the really the truth of it is, is that if you have that picture of God, then God is this horrifying person or being, whatever, who is just dangling whatever's best in front of you and expecting you to figure it out. 
right? Someone, uh, someone once said uh, that when Adam was put to sleep and God removed that rib from Adam, that rib was the, was the uh, bone that Adam needed to read minds. And that's why men and women can't get along because we've lost that one critical ability that would actually help us along in the marriage. But the reality is, is that uh, that picture of a passive-aggressive, secretive God that, uh, that has some best will for us that involves blessing and growth, but he doesn't want us to know about it. That's a horrible view of God. It's a horribly unbiblical view of God as well, by the way. And yet, it's really common to us, right? It's a part of Satan's lie uh, and, and part of the deception. But I want, us to, I want to confront it because it's so easy for us to fall back into it. So as we look at God's will in these three sections in the next three weeks, um, we have to recognize that we can't fall. And the, the final one is the peace plan, is what I call it. And this is the idea that any decision you make that you have a sense of peace is surely God's will. And I want to caveat that there might be some, uh, some value to either of these. I'm not suggesting by any means that your, your decision-making should become flippant or uncaring by any stretch of the imagination. We just want to talk about how to make decisions by the book, by, uh, by biblically speaking. Um, but this idea of uh, purporting my feelings or reporting my feelings, I feel peace about that decision, therefore it's the right thing to do could be 100% wrong because my heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. And to be honest, I can feel a lot of peace, at least in the short term, about doing a lot of things that God would never have me do. In fact, I've talked to uh, men who have been conducting secret lives and had affairs for decades, and they say, I feel totally at peace. See, that's sad. That only shows that how numb your heart is to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, how, blind, how voluntarily blind you are to the clear dictates of God's word, and, and yet you feel peace about it, right? So the idea that you're going to find God's will by whatever decision uh, gives you peace is certainly not a good biblical standard. And part of the reason why I think that that is the case is many times, many times, when God tells someone to do something, they have very little peace about the prospect. I don't want to go in there. They'll kill me. Come on, go. Right? Us feeling peaceful about things is not a great, a great um, metric of whether or not that's God's will. Certainly not God's will if it's even a metric of whether it's a good idea or not. So today we're going to begin talking about these three simple circles and of course as with anything there it's a it's a simple diagram it has limitations it doesn't necessarily you know you can you can trick it out with the right tricky question or or maybe enhance it a little bit by making it more complicated but we're just trying to get the big idea of god's will so i'd like you to think of god's will as three concentric circles one within the other within the other so nothing inside of god's uh, individual will could ever violate his moral will or his sovereign will. Nothing inside of God's moral will could ever violate his sovereign will, and so on and so on. And we'll see why this is a, a really uh, fantastic picture of understanding God's will in the world. So today what we're going to study is God's sovereign will. And the brief uh, explanation of this is understanding what God has sovereignly declared. Now, the word sovereignty oftentimes has a uh, unbiblical attachment to it. And various people of various theological schemas have tried to say that God's sovereignty means that he controls all of the zeros and the ones, right? 
for anyone who does binary code. God controls everything, every thought, every decision. He's the controller of everything. Huge problems of that. Um, and then other people will say, well, they're a little bit less deterministic or fatalistic, and they'll say sovereignty is when God controls most of the zeros and ones, and the bad ones are the ones he didn't control. It's like, okay, getting better at least. But sovereignty is a very simply that God is the ultimate and final authority in everything, and anything which he chooses to, to, to decree cannot be undone, cannot be erased, cannot be removed. So whenever God chooses to rule on something or declare that something's going to happen, there's no authority great enough to um, challenge that, change that, or... Uh, counteract that, that, stop him from doing that. That's what God's sovereignty is really about, is that finally, at the end of all things, whenever God says something, whenever God makes an official degree, decree, it's going to happen, and nothing's going to change it. Nothing can challenge it. Nothing can stop it. It doesn't mean he controls all things. It doesn't even mean he controls most things. It means that when it comes to the final analysis, whatever he says will go. He's the final standard, and his the, he's the final move. So that's God's sovereign rule. We're going to look at that in some great depth and find out what fits in that ring that doesn't necessarily fit in the others. Next is God's moral will. Now, I, I really need to find a better way to, to describe this because moral will sounds like morality, right? It's because that's the word, right? It's a good, it's a good word. Uh, so if, we, if I say it's God's moral will, you immediately jump to moral codes of do's and don'ts. This is a sin. That's not a sin. But really, God's moral will is for every single person, what he wants, rather, for every single person, what he wants for all of us. So it does include moral decisions. God never wants people stealing. God never wants people murdering. God never wants and so on and so forth, right? Because that is part of his moral code. But also, God wants things that we wouldn't necessarily necessarily align with morality like God wants or wills he tells us in his word every person to believe in Jesus Christ his son that's God's will God's will is that none should come to condemnation but that all should come to repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ oh we see that will gets broken regularly so whereas God's sovereign will can never be broken, and we'll see why that's such a comfort to us, God's moral will is constantly being defied, broken, in the life of believers, in the lives of unbelievers, and so on and so forth. And that brings consequences. So we're drawing these distinctions between these rules. And within God's sovereign will is his allowance that humans will break his moral will. So was it God's will that Adam and Eve defy him and ate of the tree of the fruit of, uh, of knowledge of good and evil? So many there. No, it wasn't God's will. God's will was the opposite. Do not eat of that tree in the center of the garden. What was what happened? God's moral will, he allowed to be broken. He allowed them to defy him, right? And similarly, so with our lives, God's moral will is for every single person to trust in Jesus Christ of salvation, and some, uh, some accept him and trust in him, and others don't. God allows his moral will. He longs that all. He doesn't take delight in the punishment of any. And yet that's it. So then we find that God's individual will is the center of, of this circle. And that is, interestingly, what is most uh, controversial and, and probably most interesting to us. What does God want me to do in this situation, right? We very frequently want that, and God very rarely gives any direct um, individual direction to a person. He does, 
Certainly, he guides us through our circumstances, he guides us through his word, and it can be very obvious based on God's sovereign will and God's moral will what God's individual will for you is in any given situation. We'll talk about this. But, for instance, you, you're wondering which city to live in. You might ask some good godly questions. Which city is going to enable me to live out God's will for my life better? In which city will I have a church family? In which city will I have a mission? Do I have something to do and serve him and glorify and honor him? In which city will I, in which job will I have time not just to provide for my family, but also to invest in my family, right? So we begin to ask the moral questions that will actually help us answer the individual, uh, the question of the individual will. Again, this will be a several week study, so we're just trying to stimulate some of the ideas before we go on to talking about God's sovereign will. It's very important that we understand God's sovereign will is central to his character. It's what, descent, uh, it's what uh, differentiates him from all of the gods and goddesses and the false paganism of the world. All of the false paganisms of the world involve and demand a God who is also a part of this system, who is going through time, who doesn't know, but God claims his deity and his uniqueness among all the other would-be gods, goddesses, idols, demons, and the like by declaring, as he says in Isaiah 61.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not done yet, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So God's sovereign will has to do with the things that God says, this is happening. If you want it to happen, it's happening. If you don't want it to happen, it's happening. You want in, it's happening. You want out, it's happening, right? And every parent knows you have those moments, right? Moments where you the child, for whatever reason, loses all of their choices to uh, comply willingly, and they're forced to comply unwillingly, right? Um, and, and that is sort of a picture of what's going on. God is staking his very deity over and against the idolatry of this world by stating that there are certain things in the end that, it, uh, that he declares he knows he's not caught up in, he's never surprised, and he's never challenged. So let's look at some of these things that fit in God's sovereign will. By the way, how can you tell if it's God's sovereign will just as you're reading through your Bible? If God declares something to be so, and there's no contingency, if you believe, then you will be saved, then you know that that's part of God's sovereign will. So let's look at some of these. God's kingdom program is a part of God's sovereign will. God sovereignly chose Abraham to be the head of the nation of Israel. God made promises of land, seed, and blessing, which he then um, amplified in the other unconditional covenants of the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Each of those covenants were filled with what? Unconditional promises. God was saying, this is what I'm going to do. I've promised you this. I'm going to do it. Abraham understood that those promises were to him and his physical progeny. The idea that God would then fulfill those somehow mystically, magically, or spiritually to the church is hogwash. And if you believe that, then your God is in a very troublesome way a liar. However, these promises to Israel will be finally fulfilled. We see that we're now in this church age, this age of grace, sometimes called a, you know, a gap or a parenthesis in God's plan, which he, of course, knew about from eternity past. Finally, it will be all fulfilled to the physical descendants of Israel, however God chooses to uh, define that in the time. 
but it will be, uh, be fulfilled to those descendants of Israel and his word will be kept and all of Israel, all of righteous Israel, it will be resurrected to enjoy that time in the kingdom. That's God's sovereign will. He's not giving anyone any choices. He's not suggesting that, hey, if you're really good, it'll come. And if you're really bad, it won't come. He promised. And just like any young person, any six-year-old, to whom you say the word ice cream will never forget that promise until the ice cream is in their hand. So we can trust that this promise will be kept by God to the Jewish people, to Israel. So another great example of God's sovereign will is Daniel's prophetic timeline, right? God reveals to Daniel, we could do this all night, literally we could do this all night going through the Bible and looking at examples of God's sovereign will when God has stated something. But God, dis uh, God displays to or reveals to Nebuchadnezzar these <clears throat> this huge statue, this colossus, this gigantic idol of, you know, made of all these precious metals. And, and then he explains through the person of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar that the head of gold is Babylon and the arms and the chest are silver and that's uh, Persia. And then we have, or sorry, Medo-Persian Empire. And then we have the Greece, uh, Greece or the Greek Empire represented by the midsection of bronze. We have the Roman Empire uh, represented by the legs of iron. And then we have some sort of reconstituted empire at the end times, not yet fulfilled, um, of you know, mixed substance, clay and iron mixed together. So that's talking about the end times. And then finally the rock, or the stone rather cut without hands will come and crush that empire. That final expression of man's desire to rule over himself that was initially exercised at the Tower of Babel and that God destroyed. That was part of God's sovereign will. Didn't matter if, uh, it didn't matter if, in fact, uh, Nebuchadnezzar very, I think very apparently from scripture became a believer. And yet it didn't change God's plan. God didn't say, hey, the guy in charge of Babylon's now a believer, so that one's going on forever. We didn't. Just as God foretold it, it happened. It was declared by God in his sovereign will, along with the coming of Christ. It was a part of God's sovereign will that was going to happen. Period. End of sentence. Nothing that mankind could have done, nothing that Satan and all of his demons could have done could ever stop God from fulfilling that sovereign will, that sovereign agreement. John 5.24 tells you something else that's in God's sovereign will. This is where it gets even more personal, I hope, for you. Uh, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Are you a believer today? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Well, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension for you, then this is a statement from God's sovereign will that cannot be changed, that cannot be overturned, that will never be upset, that you cannot back out of or walk out of because God has sovereignly declared it to be so. This is important. This is why it's so critical that we understand the three circles of God's will. When we understand that all of the things that God has declared in his sovereign will and that your salvation is a part of that circle. Your salvation is, is, is a part of that circle and now you have 
and we'll never lose everlasting life. Because if you could lose it, it wouldn't be everlasting anyway, but it doesn't matter. Even if you could somehow do some sort of real verbal wizardry and come out with a, a word eternal that doesn't mean eternal or everlasting, that doesn't mean everlasting, it doesn't change the fact that it isn't built, on, uh, it isn't built just on the semantics of the situation. It is built on the fact that Jesus Christ, that God in the flesh declared this as a part of his sovereign will. Anyone who hears his word and believes in him who sent me, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, trusts in him for salvation, is in permanent possession of everlasting life and has passed over from death, the realm of this world, to eternal spiritual life. This is important. You can't live with true confidence, and most believers don't, whether it's from the Calvinistic lordship salvation side. They live with no confidence because they're constantly trying to prove. In fact, John Calvin himself said that nobody should ever know for sure that they're saved because then you might get lazy and stop working is kind of the pith of it. So you're proving that you're saved through lordship salvation, or you go the other way. And you're earning your salvation so that it can be lost because you're worried you can lose it if you don't do enough good works. Either of these uh, schemas, these theological schemes of man, bring about sad, degenerate, depressed, and insecure little Christians. Whether you're trying to prove that you have it or you're trying to, uh, trying to make sure that you earn it and keep it, you're left with a misunderstanding about the nature of the will of God, the eternal will of God, and the salvation issue. Ephesians 1.4 likewise says, Just as he chose us corporately in him before the foundation of the world, everyone who has believed in Jesus Christ can now say, you can say, you're chosen by God. And God knew that you, before the foundation of the world, would be positioned in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a part of his sovereign will. He sovereignly de decreed, decided, agreed with, uh, between the Father and the Son that Jesus Christ would come to earth to save, and you were a part of that salvation. It's a part of God's sovereign will. It's not going anywhere. In other words, when God agreed and thought, to send Jesus Christ to earth to pay for my sin and your sin, he not only knew when you'd believe, he also knew when you'd blow it. He also knew when you'd come back. He also knew when you'd blow it again. He also knew that he'd call you back. And he did it anyway. It's a big issue. It's a part of his sovereign will. That means that we can live with confidence. We can live with absolute confidence that the only way that someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, someone has, has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the only way for that person to be unsaved if God himself becomes untrue, if God himself is willing to be made a liar by himself, and we know from Titus chapter 1 that God alone, God cannot what? He can't lie. He can't do it. It's the one thing he cannot do. Just as he chose us in him. So this is part, your salvation, your position in Christ, like we saw, that every believer, everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ is identified with him as his, in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating. That is a part of the eternal or the sovereign will of God. You can trust in that. So trust in that. And you'll live a life of confidence. Don't trust in that. 
You're going to live the same underconfident life that most Christians have lived throughout much of Christian history. Let's look at something else that you can count on as part of God's sovereign will. It's happening regardless of what uh, anyone does or says or has to say about it or thinks about it. First Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. Paul writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. God the Father knows when the God the Son is coming back. It's a part of his eternal plan. It's happening whether in his time, we don't know. It's going to happen, though, as a part of his eternal plan. Nothing's going to turn off the rapture. Not so many years ago, there was a cuckoo, uh, cuckoo pants crazy bird. Harold Van Camping, I think, was his name. And he'd announced at least one rapture already. And then he announced another rapture. And sure enough, May 21st or whatever it was came along and nobody went home. And so, of course, everyone was on his doorstep saying, what happened? He said, well, no one was good enough. The rapture was canceled. We moved it to uh, October 21st. Send more money. And when that one didn't happen, just quietly slunk away with the millions of dollars that he'd scammed people out of. The rapture, though, is surely on God's calendar. It's happening whether we, uh, whether we want it to or not, or whether the world wants it to or not. It's going to happen. And so we can know, not based on if we can just be good enough. In fact, uh, most world religions, even, uh, even Judaism, carries about it with a myth that if all the Jews in all the world could just be faithful for one day, then the Messiah would come back. And, of course, that's not true at all. The Messiah won't come back until Israel asks Jesus and recognizes him as the Messiah and invites him back at the end of the tribulation period is when that will happen. But the timing of the rapture and the existence of the rapture is a part of God's sovereign will. It's not a maybe. You can count on it. Which means that every moment we can honestly say, this could be my last chance to talk to, to share the gospel with, to chat with this person before we're taken up. Other things that are a part of God's sovereign will, there is after that tribulation, a seven year, uh, sorry, after that, the rapture, there's gonna be some sort of preparation period probably, it won't be an immediate one too, but there'll be a um, unveiling of the Antichrist. Oops, hello there, not you. Um, there'll be an unveiling of the Antichrist. There'll be, and this uh, chart comes to us courtesy of J.B. Hickson, not by Works Ministries, but, <clears throat> The Antichrist will be revealed. He'll make a, a, an agreement with Israel. And um, yeah, he'll make an agreement with Israel. And then the uh, seal judgments will come. I keep doing that, don't I? The seal judgments will come upon uh, the earth as the, uh, the day of the Lord's wrath kind of continues and pour, is poured out upon the earth. The, uh, the judgments of God will be poured forth. And probably more people from that generation, I believe, will be saved than any other generation because so many people will see the divine judgments of God. That's a part of God's plan. 
And it's kind of interesting because a lot of people will talk about deterministically, like at that point, God will supernaturally give Israel the will to believe in him, but it couldn't be further from the truth. I have no idea what's happening here. Shireen, are you maybe leaning on that clicker? <laughs> You're just toying with me, aren't you? You're just clicking that thing back. It's going to drive him nuts. But... What's really going to happen? She did, you did it again. I'm blaming you. You're not doing it. <laughs> I'm teasing. But what's really going to happen here is very, very simple and very, very obvious. That these supernatural actions on the part of the living God, choosing the 144,000 Jewish people from each tribe, the uh, rise of the Antichrist, the, the um, judgments of truly biblical proportions on the earth, will cause Israel to come back in faith. It will. It'll cause them to go, oh yeah, we blew it. And they'll turn. They'll turn. So, knowing God's will. Knowing and trusting in God's sovereign will means living life with confidence. You see, everyone's terrified about the COVID. Everyone's terrified about the Everyone's terrified about what's going to happen if the guy you don't like gets elected. Everyone's terrified about what's going to happen if China does this or Russia does that. Whoa, we're terrified about what's going to happen. And Christians at least should say, God's will will happen. The rapture's not canceled. Salvation's not canceled. The tribulation's not canceled. In fact, if you have two brain cells to rub together, you can see how he's setting everything up and lining up the pins perfectly to the point where we, can, we have to have less faith than any other generation. Can you imagine sitting around with your, with your brothers and sisters in Christ in 1850 and having to say, well, look, it seems to me, it seems to me that God's going to be faithful to Israel. And they're like, Israel hasn't been around for years. What are you talking about? That's just nuts. And then 1948 comes around, and what do you know? There's an Israel around. We would have said, the idea of a one-world monetary financial system. What a ridiculous idea. It's already here, guys. 100% already here. I've got a credit card in my pocket. I take it to the Philippines. I take it to Korea. I take it anywhere in this world. I go beep, beep, and the money goes out of my account. Just saying, Christians 30, 50 years ago would have to say, it's a bit far-fetched. Christians 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago would say, oh, come on. Someone just writes something on your forehead and you're not allowed to buy and sell. And you go, oh, yeah, well, in a cashless culture where they want to you know, insert this or that. And makes sense. We need less faith to believe in the sovereign will of God than any generation before us. It's all live and in person. Right? Looking at the, uh, the, the two witnesses, it says their, their bodies will sit on the streets of Jerusalem and the whole world will see. And how in the world are the whole world going to see, based on in the 16, 17, 1800s, how in the world is the whole world going to see the, the bodies of these two witnesses as they lie on the streets of Jerusalem? That's ridiculous. It must be spiritual. It must be allegorical. We say, I can see the live stream being set up right now. And I can see people watching it 24 hours a day just to get a little kick out of watching God's chosen ones fall, right? Okay, enough belaboring the details. 
knowing God's sovereign will shouldn't scare us and make us tinfoil hat-wearing, fear-mongering fools. It should make us confident that God's will will be done. And if it's his will for us to suffer before that time in the last days of our lives here, or even all the days of our lives here on this planet, that will be nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And you can only have that confidence if you trust in God's sovereignly revealed will. It's quite simple. Next, knowing God's will, God's sovereign will specifically, enables us to live with eyes wide open and without fear. Okay, I guess I spoiled that one. But that's it. We can live absolutely without fear no matter what happens on the news, no matter who lies to who, no matter what's being hidden from us, no matter what's going on, we can live with absolute and utter confidence that the Lord will do exactly what he says and that ultimately he will bring judgment upon, or pull us out of this world, bring judgment on this earth, and we will live in a world largely, if not entirely, redeemed and ruled by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and take a part in that administration. It's almost like the absolute substantiating joy that every child feels approaching summer break, except for summer break, once it comes, lasts forever. And it will erase all the sorrows of this world. So we can live without fear, regardless of what we lose, regardless of what, how we suffer in this life. We can live with confidence. And finally, and most importantly, and enables us to, to, to utter those four sweet words to ourselves. I can mind my own business. I don't need to hustle around trying to change world affairs. I don't need to hustle around trying to, uh, trying to uh, affect all the things or hide from all the things that scare me. I can trust in what the Lord has revealed and go about my business and I hope your business, of sharing the love, the truth, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, of building up the church and loving your brothers and sisters, of honoring God in every day, in every moment, in every duty, in every task, in every relationship. And it enables us to finally just mind our own business and say, God, all that stuff that I want to worry about, you said you'd take responsibility. So I'm going to go ahead and let you do that. So hopefully, as we go forward, we'll find out even more so what our business is, what our business is to be about. And so that's why next week we'll move into God's moral will. But let's close our study tonight with a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we praise you for this great and wonderful gift, your perfect word, your revealed sovereign will. You've declared it. It's as if it's finished. And from your eternal perspective, it is. Included in that, your plan for the ages, your redemption of planet Earth, and lest we forget for a moment, your redemption of us, poor, needy sinners, saved only by your grace, through faith in the working of your Son, Jesus Christ eternally decreed to be made into something that we weren't, restored to your image and likeness, 
conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Might we live with such confidence because you have revealed it to us. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.